Let's pray. It is exciting, Lord, to see your hand at work in our church body and to hear the stories of rescue and redemption as people talk about how they once were lost but now are found. They were blind but now they see. And it's all because of your amazing grace that pursues us, opens our eyes to our sin and convicts us, and lovingly draws us to the only hope, a Savior, the God-man, who came into this earth to die in our place that we would never have to die, and rose again, putting death to death, so that he who has the Son has life and shall never die. Lord, we thank you for Larry and Helen, other missionaries like them, being willing to go all over the world to share this good news with others. And I pray, Father, that we will share it ourselves with those around us. And now as we come to your word, we pray that you will open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Igor Stravinsky, rather interesting Russian composer, uh, pianist, conductor, spent uh, a part of his life in France and then also in America. But he was something with a, not only was he a genius in the realm of music, but he, I, I love his sense of humor. He once said, harpists spend 90% of their lives tuning their harps and 10% of their time playing out of tune. <laughs> now that's not true of Rebecca who plays for us uh, on occasion, does such a wonderful job. And I'm sure that's a bit of hyperbole that it is not true, but it seems true perhaps at times. But I think of that 90% trying to get in tune and 10% out of tune. Sounds like a pretty good description of the normal Christian life. We spend a lot of time trying to get in tune and then when we actually try to live, we seem to be a little out of tune. And that's why the scriptures are designed to call us back to Christ. Calling us back to Christ means we realize that our only acceptance is in him. And calling us back to Christ urges us to have this mind in us, which was also in Christ. To take upon us the cross daily and follow Christ and to seek to do good works for the glory of Christ. And I love the way that the book of Hebrews brings us back to the person of Christ. Yes, you may not realize it, but today is the final sermon in the book of Hebrews. We have arrived. I love verse 22 in chapter 13 that says, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you only a short letter. <laughs> the word short is relative. 
when a pastor comes up and says, I just have a short message, buckle up. Because that usually means his attempt to be brief uh, will be anything but. I think I shared with you uh, about the book written by a Puritan author, 700 pages long, and the very first words in the introduction were, and in conclusion, and then he wrote 700 pages. Eutychus died because of a long sermon. Paul just kept going on and on and on. So there was a time to quit. Uh, We've actually had 42 sermons in this series, which is one of the longer ones. And it started back in April 2021. Um, most of you were alive at that day, <laughs> but that was a while ago. But we're coming now to the end. Many people start fast, but few finish strong. And the author, Whoever that author is of the book of Hebrews finishes in a strong fashion, and we're going to see how he does it. But first of all, notice in verse 18, and we touched on these verses just a little bit uh, last week, but I want to touch on them again under the heading, you pray for us, or you pray for me. Verse 18, pray for us. Now that's a rather generic statement. Pray for us, what are you going to pray for? Probably the normal things uh, for protection in that day, for consistent witness, uh, maybe pray for health, uh, pray for our understanding of the gospel and our following of the gospel. Pray for us. And we need to pray for us or pray for others in generic ways. Conscious of the fact that if people don't pray for us, something will be hindered. If we don't pray for others, it seems as though he's saying, if you don't pray for us, we may not make it to you, or our coming to you will be hindered. So pray for us. It's not, it's not something we say as a mere cliche. It's something we believe in, and it doesn't alter the sovereignty of God. The prayers of people are worked into the holy providence of God. And both are true. And let us not lean to one side at the expense of the other. Our prayers are answered because God is sovereign. And the sovereign God has made our prayers vitally important. He says in verse 18, we're sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way, which almost implies that there was word out there that um, this, these individuals were not living honorably and did not have a clear conscience. Of course, the author of the book of Hebrews is uh, away from the people he's writing to, but he wants them to know that his motive is clear. He has a clear conscience. Uh, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about a clear conscience. Sometimes the Bible talks about a good conscience or a pure conscience or a clear conscience. And on the other side of the ledger, a bad conscience or a seared conscience. The conscience is an interesting thing. I think it's the light of, that touches every man mentioned in John chapter one. And it has this sense of understanding, innately so, that there is a creator over me with whom I have to do. 
and we fight against that knowledge, but it's hard to erase it. Yet some have with a seared conscience, and God has given them over. But he wants them to know he's seeking to live his life with a pure conscience. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 1.12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but relying on the grace of God. What a wonderful statement. If we all could say, my conscience is clear because the blood of Christ has cleansed me from all my sin and and I'm resting not on the wisdom of the world but the grace of God. And I seek to conduct myself in this world in such a way that God would be well pleased. But then he makes a specific request in verse 19. He goes from the generic to the specific, and so should we in our prayers. He says, I urge you particularly to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Because they're at a distance, uh, perhaps the most natural understanding is that they would be restored in fellowship, that uh, this writer would be able to come back with the congregation and be among them. But it may be this whole idea of restoration is to take care of a spiritual break, of a division, of a hostility and conflict that has arose. And certainly the writer has addressed some of those things with the spiritual drift and the spiritual dullness in chapter five that exists, and the rebuke, and the encouragement for them to come back. So it may be this idea of spiritual restoration. And when you think about it, life is relationships, especially with God first, but with others. People we're longing to be with, and there are many people that we are longing to be restored with, where there's been a break. As much as lies within you, live at peace with everyone. Because we are peacemakers, and we're going to see that we serve a God of peace. So having requested prayer for himself, you pray for us, verse 18 and 19. Now he's going to add the second part of his final words, or the sermon actually, uh, I will pray for you. People praying for their leaders and leaders praying for the people that they're responsible to. So basic, and yet we often miss it. When people say to me, I want you to know I'm praying for you and all the staff, I cannot tell you how much that means. Unless you're lying, it means a lot. But rarely would someone come up and say, hey, I'm praying for you. I sometimes say when people have a problems, I'll pray for you. And I've got to pray for them right away or else I'll forget. Do you have that problem? Write it down. Send me an email. Somehow or else my promise to pray becomes an intention never realized. But they're praying for each other. You pray for me and I'll pray 
for you. And so what we have at the end of the book of Hebrews is one of the most magnificent prayers you'll ever find. It is one of the famous benedictions. The word benediction comes from two Latin words, well and speak. So it is the speaking well or the speaking of something well or good to happen among people. It's usually a short um, invocation involved in a worship service. We talk about invocations usually at the beginning and benedictions usually at the end, but it is a benediction and a doxology. There are some big ones in the scriptures. Obviously in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter six is a big blessing that we often pray. I use it a lot at weddings. Um, There are two big doxologies in the book of Romans, chapter 11, chapter 16. You've got the end of Jude, Jude 25 or 24, 25. But there's about 13 or 14, and if you count the little verses, grace to you as a benediction, which it is in a sense, there are many. Why? Because we want the good of God to be upon our friends. And so we want to bless them with a benediction. So that's what this prayer is, starting in verse 20. You pray for us, now we pray for you, and this is how it starts. Now may the God of peace, let's stop right there. It won't get very far into the prayer before we have to, we have to sit on this word a little bit. The God of peace. Maybe he uses such a title because there are many names for God, are there not? Compound names in the Hebrew, wonderful adjectives given to the Lord. We're coming into the Christmas season where we think of Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, wonderful titles and names. But our God is the God of peace. By the way, it's very Trinitarian. The Father is the God of peace, at least mentioned another five times in the scriptures, this wonderful title of God, which reveals his nature, his essence. It's intrinsic to who God is. He is peace, just like he is love. The Father is the God of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ said in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. And then the Holy Spirit fills us with his fruit, which is love, joy, peace. That was a freebie. You should have known what was (laughs) talking about peace. And I paused. Love, joy, and peace. See the Trinitarian nature of God throughout the scriptures and understand his blessing to us. (laughs) The Father is the one who creates peace and the Son is the one who dies for our peace and the Spirit is the one who fills us with that peace and our life should be characterized by peace. If you know God. As turmoil 
and difficulty come into the life, let us turn to God for peace. It was Matthew Henry who once said, peace is such a precious jewel that I would give anything for it but truth. Peace. Do you have peace? You say, where do I get it? Thou shalt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. The old King James of Isaiah 26. Because you trust in him. And he is your rock. Make God your focus. Make him your stay. Make him your joy and he will be your peace as you trust him. And then we get into a adjectival phrase, actually a phrase that describes who this God of peace is. Now may the God of peace, who is, by the way, or who has, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, all of that describes this God of peace. And by the way, this wonderful doxology has a beautiful way of summarizing the key themes of the whole book of Hebrews. And now we're talking about those central portions of the middle of the book, especially chapter 7 through 10, where Christ has, through his blood, established a new covenant that is better than the old. It's through the blood a covenant is established. It was the blood of the animals in the old. It's the blood of Jesus in the new. And it's through the blood of this eternal covenant. The old covenant was temporary. This is an eternal covenant, never to be replaced. And it is the covenant through the blood of Christ, in which the Father raised Jesus from the dead. By the way, this is the only mention of the resurrection in the entire book of Hebrews. Not that he didn't believe it, but here is the time to exalt it. <clears throat> For the covenant means nothing if Jesus is dead, and it cannot be eternal if our priest is gone. The Arianic priesthood is gone, dismissed, antiquated. But Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, his priesthood will last forever. And that's what brings us peace. Because the one who died in my place and shed his blood to satisfy the justice of the Father. The God of peace wants peace, but not peace at any price. His holiness demands payment, and Jesus makes the payment so we can have the peace of God. And Jesus lives forever as a high priest, and now is ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, ever to make intercession for us. He was raised from the dead. Oh, the book of Hebrews says it over and over and over again. Seated, because his work is done, atoning work is done, at the right hand of the Father, but working as he makes intercession for us. By the way, the word peace is very full. It does mean absence of conflict. 
And when we are reconciled to God because of the death of Jesus, when our sins are forgiven and we're justified before God, there is peace and the absence of conflict between us and God. And we need to live, as we mentioned, with others in peace, absence of conflict. But it also means tranquility of soul, heaven in the heart, a good conscience, peace. Do you live with God's peace in your heart? There's peace with God, justification, and the peace of God, which is sanctification, connected with our simple walk with Christ. It's the peace of God that reigns in our heart, and it's the Holy Spirit who lets us know when we're out of peace. But then there's a third way to describe it, taking up the Old Testament Hebrew word shalom, there is this wonderful flourishing of well-being in every department of heart and mind and soul. It's the way God intended us to be, to live in his presence with shalom. Shalom was a greeting and it was also a goodbye. And that's part and parcel of what we're praying for by the eternal covenant. And by the way, did you notice that our Lord Jesus Christ is called the great shepherd of the sheep? Spend time thinking deeply about the titles of God. Here it is of Christ. So Moses was a shepherd for the people of Israel, and David too. And we read Psalm 23 about a, a good shepherd, a great shepherd, Jehovah. When you come into the New Testament, Jesus is called the good shepherd. John 10, he gives his life for the sheep. Here he's called the great shepherd because he has been raised from the dead and established this new covenant by his own blood. And the raising of Jesus from the dead is the Father saying to him, with you I am well pleased. Think about it, when Jesus, on the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, the Father turned his back on him. But to take Jesus back into heaven means it is finished, payment accepted. With you I am well pleased. He's the great shepherd. But he's also the chief shepherd, Peter tells us. I don't know if this is totally accurate in every way, but I do like the way Warren Wiersbe puts this together. He says the good shepherd dies for the sheep, the great shepherd lives for the sheep, the chief shepherd comes for his sheep. And that's all true, but I think there's some overlapping. But it's a good way to think about it. He's good, he's great, he is Lord of Lords, King of Kings and chief of all. Because he is the risen shepherd, he has unparalleled compassion and power. Read Ephesians 1. The power that raised Jesus from the dead works in us. That 
is amazing power. The beauty power of earthly potentates is laughable. When a king or a president or an emperor or a prime minister stands up and boasts of their power, Psalm 2, the one who sits in the heavens laughs. You've got to be kidding. Ever played a game with your young child and they get a little bit too full of themselves? Oh boy, yeah. <laughs> and they began to make predictions about victory and I'm really good at this game. And you know, at that point, every father wants to teach his son a lesson. <laughs> of course, there'll be a day when what the son or child wants to do, they will be able to do, but puny man raises his clenched fist in the face of God Almighty and says, I will, and God laughs. Oh, but those who know Jesus Christ have the power of the living God within their soul, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So that's who we're praying to, the God of peace, who raised Christ from the dead. But here's the actual request. Now may the God of peace, verse 21, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is well-pleasing to him. So that's the request basically for two things, equipping and enabling. Now the, the Greek word here for equipping is a fascinating word because it had three clear uses in that day. Uh, in the classic Greek, this particular word was used for the setting of a bone. So you think of a doctor in his, uh, in his office bringing people in who have broken bones and he is trying to repair, to put back together in its proper place. Which by the way, back in chapter 12 verse 13, the author described these people as having limbs dislocated so they need some repair. The second image is that of a sailor mending his nets. And by the way, is used of the disciples in the book of Matthew, where they would mend their nets, again repairing something that is broken. But the third use is maybe where we think more often of the word equip, and that is to supply what is needed for a soldier to give him his rations and his uniform and his equipment, his armory and his helmet for protection, to give, supply him with everything he needs. All in this one word, equip. I pray that this God of peace who brought back from the dead the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, I pray that he will equip you with everything good for doing everything good, his will. So his focus in the prayer is that we might indeed <clears throat> be repaired, and certainly the people that he's writing to need some mending, that we might be repaired 
to do God's work. Now, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it properly, but there is an ancient pottery tradition among the Chinese, kintsugi or kintsugi. Someone who knows Japanese, come and tell me later how off I am. But the whole point is that this is a tradition where they'll take a a clay pot and they'll break it and then they'll put it together. But instead of just putting it together with what we might think of as glue, they use pure gold. And in doing so, the pot now becomes stronger and far more valuable than it ever was. Sounds a whole lot like Jeremiah going down to the pottery and seeing the man making a pot, and, but it was marred in his hand, so he made it again. And Jeremiah was told by the Lord, you tell Israel, this is what I'm doing with them. They're marred, so I'm making them again. We're all broken pots. And when God makes us right, sometimes we're stronger than we were ever before and able to accomplish his mighty will. The scars of the pots become beautiful stories of healing and restoration rather than painful stories of brokenness and destruction. I think some of the people that were receiving the letter from this author, the letter we call to the Hebrews, might have been thinking, my time is done. I've sinned too badly ever to be recovered. And I want you to know that Jesus can save you and recover you from wherever you are. And that's what this author wants his people to grasp. God has outfitted us so that we can do everything. He has equipped us, as it says in 2 Timothy, so that we can accomplish all that he calls us to do. And he enables us. That's the last part of this. He equips us and works in us what is pleasing to him. Now, it's interesting. Did you notice the shift? He will equip you, but he will enable us. And the author now puts himself into the same category with his readers and joins in a rather sensitive way, acknowledging that he is one with them. This sounds a whole lot like Philippians chapter two, where God works in us both to will and to do. You see, we are totally without inclination and capacity to do good works. We cannot do them, but once saved, God has called us to do good works. Good works are not part of our redemption. They are the evidence that we've been redeemed. So we read in Ephesians chapter two and verse 10 that God has planned for us to do these good works beforehand, planned for us to do them, ordained for us to do them. And now he gives us both inclination and ability to do it. It is a Pauline paradox 
that is never answered in the scripture. Every one of us is giving a, given a divine task and we're given everything we need to do everything that God has called us to do, everything that is good. And he works in us both to will and to do what is good. And yet it's our responsibility to see that it is done. It was the will of God that Jesus would die and it's the same will of God that brought him up again from the dead and those who follow Christ are to do the will of God from the heart. The will of God, that's what it's about. So we're praying to God, we're praying for this equipping and enablement, but notice the last part of the prayer, we're praying through Jesus Christ, that he may work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Now most doxologies and benedictions are aimed at the Father, even in the New Testament, but here is one that is aimed at the Son. And there's a few others, like in the book of the Revelation. See, apart from Christ, we could share in none of these blessings. And the only way the blessings get to us is via Jesus And so like the whole book of Hebrews says, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the greatest person, first few chapters of the book of Hebrews. He's the greatest priest center of the book of Hebrews. And he has the greatest promise by faith, embracing the promises and living them out, the last part of the book of Hebrews. And what we see in this prayer is that man's greatest good coincides with God's great glory. For it ends as many of the doxologies do, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. What does amen mean? So be it, it's true, make it happen. I agree, let's go, (laughs) amen. Now he mentions a few other things and we won't get into details on this. In fact, a lot of these things are questionable. We mentioned the exhortation in 22, the fact that Timothy has been released. Is this the same Timothy we know? If so, this guy runs in Pauline circles, the author does. And if this is true, this is the only time in the whole Bible an imprisonment of Timothy is mentioned. He talks about coming to them soon, hoping to see them soon, we mentioned that briefly. Verse 24, we talked about greeting your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send their greetings. This is hard to understand. Uh, Are these people with Paul or is he writing to these people? Where are these people? That has not been answered. But what has been answered is that the way the end of the book finishes is, again, a great benediction. The one word quintessential to our relationship with God is grace. Grace be with you all. Isn't that a wonderful benediction? 
And while we don't understand a lot in the book of Hebrews, we do understand this. Christ is the greatest person. He's superior as a person, superior as a priest and his priesthood, superior in all of his promises. Christ is our all and all. Consider him and embrace him. Hold on to him and you have everything. During the bombing raids in Europe of World War II, many young children were displaced, some of them taken to places to get out of London. Others became orphans because their parents were killed. Some ended up in orphanages, others trying to find their way on the street. But even those who had experienced the bombing and lived and maybe were placed in an orphanage had a rough time living after that. You can only imagine every time they heard an airplane how they would think of the bombs. And they had a rough time getting these people to sleep, these kids to sleep, because they had experienced such a long time without food and not knowing where their next meal would come from And so someone came up with a great idea that when we put them to bed at night, we're going to give them a slice of bread. And it was amazing to see how content they were because they knew where their next meal was coming from. I've got it right here. And what a great spiritual lesson that is to think, I have Christ. And I know I will live again because he who has the son has life. Therefore, the peace of God is mine. And I hope the peace of God is yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks to us in our time of need and points us to the Savior, the author, and the finisher of our faith. Let us not drift away or intentionally depart from he who is our all. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, rule our hearts and minds because of Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. 